Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. We've got tons to rattle through this week, episode 48 of the Drive Nation podcast. There's been quite a lot going on in the car world, so we're going to talk about a lot of that stuff. New McLaren, are we calling it Arthur or are we actually going to call it its proper name, Artura? You see, you, put, you sounded slightly Italian then. Do you think that's what they actually intended? Do you think they hope everyone's going to call it the Artura? Artura. Because it sounds <laughs> slightly like a, an Italian supercar. Um, it's trolling, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think people are going to call it the Arthur, I'm afraid. I think colloquially they will, but I don't think <laughs> owners will. So I don't think the people who actually matter no. to McLaren will call it the Arthur. I think they'll call it the Artura. Um, yeah. But Porsche and Ferrari you, owners, what, not so much. Yeah, what? <laughs> look, I see you brought the Arthur. Yes, I can see that <laughs> happening a bit. Uh, what do you think... There's probably an entire podcast on this subject, so maybe we'll come back to it. But what do you think about car names versus car numbers? <clears throat> I think the, the best designations are really good names, but I suspect all the good names are long gone. And, well, we, we've spoken about this before, haven't we? All these fabricated words that manufacturers are using these days, Skoda in particular, Karok, yeah. Kodiak, Kamik. whatever else. Can, yes. <laughs> so, I, there's another one as well. I can't remember. My problem is I can't remember them because I can't remember made up um, made up names. And also when they're all quite similar to each other. I mean, I had to go and look, and I shouldn't have to do this because I'm a motoring journalist. I should know uh, at what the difference between a Kamik and a Karok is. Mm. And I know now. I'm sure you'll be able to tell me. Uh, slightly different lettering. A Kamik is smaller than a Karok, uh, I think. Okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, so Artura, let's, let, 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 let's not get sidetracked by that. Um, yeah, so I've seen it. Um, yeah. I have, I've done more than look at the photographs. I've actually been and crawled all over it, and I've sat in it. Um, and 
you know, in in many ways, it is what you would expect from McLaren, and in many ways, it's not. So, what do you expect from McLaren? In so far as it's a carbon tub mid-engine two-seat sports car, um, and to date, McLaren has never made anything else um, apart from three-seaters. So Apart from three-seaters, yes. Oh, well, indeed, yes. Um, both in the F1 and the Speedtail. <laughs> yes, I stand corrected. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Um, and I guess you could predict that it would go to a downsized, um, down-cylindered hybrid powertrain because that is also the way that um, the world is going. I mean, the numbers are spectacular, aren't they? What is it, 671 horsepower with both the uh, the ICE and the electric motor combined? Um, yeah. I think what is actually most impressive about it is given it's got over a hundred extra horsepower, given that it's got all those batteries and motors and associated governs, is it own it weighs less than fifty kilos more than a five seventy S. Um, which was already a very light car and it's got an eight speed gearbox, not a seven speed gearbox, and it's got an E diff in it rather than a, an open diff. And all, these things all weigh stuff and it's got a load of feature content in it. Um and yet it's still a really, really light car. I mean, McLaren's contention, and I've had done a bit of digging, and it's kind of supportable, is that this is a hybrid that weighs the same as a non-hybrid. Um, so if you look at you know yeah. the obvious rivals, I mean, it's lighter. It's not as light as an F8, um, but it's about where a 488 GTB was, and it's a lot lighter than a Hurricane. Um, but it's got a full hybrid powertrain in it, and it does, uh, I mean, you know, the ridiculous thing. Um, is that its CO2 is lower than that of the smallest engine MX-5. Um, <laughs> which is silly, but that's not McLaren's fault. That's just the way the figures are calculated. And if, you, if, if the, the rules allow you to do that, then you know who's, who's not going to? Um, do you think it looks... I mean, we've, we've had quite a lot of comments about the looks, haven't we? <laughs> Some people saying they really like it. Some people saying, oh, it's just another McLaren. Uh, it looks like all the others. Blah. What do you think? I was surprised, um, given that it is such a leap forward for McLaren in the technological sense, that it looked so, to me, without having seen it in the flesh, so recognisable, um, so similar actually to the Sport Series range, particularly from the rear. I think from the rear, it looks yeah. like a facelifted 570. Um, yeah. Quite different from the front. I think that enormous vent down the side is really striking. Um, and I was, I was just expecting that the 720S demonstrated what McLaren's sort of next generation styling. And I just thought this new um, Artura would have those similar sort of eye socket headlights, you know, and just, just borrow yeah. some of those design features to but demonstrate the fact quite, that they're, they're, Sorry, those eye socket headlights of the 720S have actually been quite criticised, haven't they? People have said that the five seven the seven twenty s just isn't as good looking as a as a five seventy s and I've you know I've always thought that the five seventy s uh, particularly the five seventy GT actually is a fantastically good looking motor car. Mm. Um, I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? One thing that struck me with all these comments with people sort of saying, "Oh, it looks too much like the last one." Nobody ever says this with the nine elevens, do they? <laughs> That's a good point. A 992 comes out and it looks basically the same as a 991 and everybody goes, yeah, it's a 911. Um, and yet when McLaren does the same thing, and I guess it's kind of heritage, isn't it? I mean, you know, you couldn't do a 911 which didn't look like a 911. No. Um, because it wouldn't be a 911. I mean, that, that silhouette is so integral to the car. Um, you couldn't do it any other way. And yet 
um, yeah, with a McLaren, which is, you know, McLaren Automotive is only a 10 year, well, it's only been producing cars for 10 years. Um, I think there is a level of expectation, whereas we expect 911s to just simply and quite quietly evolve. I think we expect McLarens to shock and awe us every time they come up with something new. And when it doesn't, or when they don't, um, we go, oh, all right then. Hmm. Um, but it will be interesting to see what the customers make of it because, you know, I think it is a good looking car. I think, you know, if the 570S didn't exist, I think we'd be looking at it and going, wow, that's, and, and, and in the flesh, um, although I've not seen it on the road yet, and I always reserve judgment until I do, in a studio, which is where I have seen it, um, I think it looks pretty exciting. Um, so, how about the interior? How does that feel? Premium. Yeah, I think I think they've made a big effort um, with the interior. Um, what they've tried to do is obviously, I mean, McLaren's obviously rightly or wrongly had quite a lot of criticism about perceived quality um, and reliability, and I think that they really have tried their very hardest to make this feel worth every penny of the asking price. And I think it starts at about £185,000. So it's a lot more um, than you'd have paid for a sports series car. Um, and they've also thought a lot about um, where switches are positioned. So there's, although the steering wheel itself is as clean as it always was, um, you know, all the major essential things you want to get at all the time, you don't even have to take your hand off the wheel anymore. Um, so it's quite dynamic. Um, those little switches um, for adjusting the powertrain uh, and the active button that you had to press to make all that come alive, which I always thought was a bit of a nice McLaren theatre. I like, you know, starting the car and then going right here we go, and then, uh, that's gone. Um, so you can still obviously choose the different modes, but you can't. You don't have to sort of activate those um, those functions anymore. But I, yeah, I, I mean, I liked it, but. Um, you know the proof of the pudding. I mean, it's going to be amazing to drive, isn't it? Mm. Okay, how shocked would you be if you drove it and you thought, "What are they doing? They've turned it into a you know a, a, a slushy barge." So it's not going to happen, is it? It's going, it's going to be fantastic to drive. So you know they just need to be conservative with production. Um, they need to build it right um, and. You know, and, and then the agenda moves on to what else are they going to spin off that platform? Because I mean, everything is going to be related to it. So how how adjustable is it? How much longer or shorter can you make the wheelbase? Can you put a couple of rear seats behind it? Uh, what other kinds of car can you turn it into? Because McLaren has been criticised for making you know the same car in a number of different ways, haven't they? Um, mm. And I think they have to try and get on top of that perception. Um, but I, th- you know, I think if you just look at the proposition for the money, if you look at the power, um, you look at the kind of car that it is. Um, I mean, it looks competitive, doesn't it? At least competitive, probably more so. It does, and <clears throat> I think it's really interesting. It's, it'll still have hydraulic steering, which has been, you know, one of McLaren's trump cards since the, the start of the McLaren automotive era. Everything else going to E-Pass, McLaren has stuck with hydraulic steering, which makes a huge difference. Um, yeah. There's now an electronically controlled limited slip diff in it as well, which is a, a real yeah. um, diversion for McLaren. So that will answer one criticism some of us had. Um, also, the hybrid system will have a torque fill element, which will help improve throttle response, which is yeah. th- that's going to make a big difference. Um, yeah. So it seems as though McLaren is addressing 
some of the, the criticisms we had of its earlier product certainly with this on, new car. C- certainly on paper, yeah. On I paper. mean, the diff is very interesting. I mean, I've, you know, I, th- I think we have sort of you know, had this conversation many, many times, and I wonder if once the original decision was made um, sort of 10 years ago um, to have an open diff in the car, whether the way it was integrated was such that you couldn't really unscramble that egg and you had to wait Mm. until you did an entirely new car before you could do... And that's why they have been... I was about to say lumbered. I don't think lumbered because, you know, Lotus, for instance, don't have limited slip differentials in their car, and that's clearly out of choice. I mean, there are good arguments for not having them. Not sufficiently good in the case of a car with whatever it is, 671 horsepower. But, um, yeah, I wonder whether if they could have done it, they would have done it before now. Uh, who knows? But, yes, as you say, um, you know, with that, um, with the eight-speed box, with the, the infill from the hybrid. And if you look at their previous hybrids, if you look at a P1, I mean, that's pretty lag-free hmm. because of the way. the and, and that's old tech. So, I mean, you, know, you would hope, wouldn't you? I mean, Ferrari claim that their non-hybridized V8 is zero lag. Uh, I've never particularly bought that, but I, I kind of understand. I mean, the, their, their response times are amazing. I mean, much better than McLaren. So maybe they will have sorted that out. Um, and maybe you'll be able to do really big skids in it too. <laughs> well, we'll find out soon. Um, okay, so one last comment. It, uh, according to my notes, it's 46 kilograms heavier than the, the 570S. Um, yeah, and the, of course the the big advantage is that you've got what's quoted as a 19 mile electric only range, which that's probably not how we we'd like our supercars to be configured. But that that does make a big difference in terms of using them in town. Um, I mean, it's great to be able to drive a near 700 horsepower supercar through town without spewing anything out the back whatsoever. I think that is good actually. Um, yeah, and, and, and also being able to get into it. Um, mm. And off your street, not that many, too many people have them parked outside their houses. They'll probably be in air-conditioned garages. But nevertheless, get away from the neighbourhood without waking up, you know, everybody you know. Yeah. Um, and just be able to waft around. Um, I think I think that is a good thing. I mean, you know, they do that because it's a it's kind of a function of plugging it in and and, and all that they do to get the CO two figure. So these are all sort of, you know, beneficial side effects of the main event, which is to keep that CO two figure as low as humanly possible i mean they could have gone for a non-plug-in couldn't they mm. um and had a lighter car still um but then their co2 figure wouldn't have been wouldn't have been as good and you know and um they would have ended up getting taxed or fined or whatever so um it is what it is and do you have you heard when we might drive it because i don't think that i have no no i, I don't think know. it's going to be a while i think yeah. it's going to be a while i think it might be the other side of the summer oh really because that is a while mm. okay mm. Um, one, I think it might be wrong. So my final thing that I wanted to say, 46 kilogram weight penalty. I think if you were driving a 570 and a 46 kilogram human sat in beside you, I think you'd have as much fun driving that car without them, particularly that's, on the road. That's, that's quite a light human, isn't it? It is. It's a, I think it's probably a young adolescent or a, a tiny adult, um, like yeah. a really small adult. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, just, yes. I just don't think it's, it, it's not going to ruin the driving experience. No, it's not particularly given that you've got another 100 horsepower uh, and all this other stuff that we talked about as well. So, no, it's not going to... Re- I mean, you know, the, they will have sweated over every one of those kilograms um, because they, they, they just don't like them. Um, mm. uh, so, yeah, I think, yeah, I, I think it is as light as they can get it um, without using sort of unobtainium everywhere. So, you know, fair play to them. Um, okay, let's talk about Jaguar and Ford. Because both, in the last few days, both companies have committed to being electric only, EV only, 
um, Ford in Europe at least. Uh, Jaguar from 2025, Ford a little bit later, yeah. 2030. So only four years for Jaguar. Um, and of course, when this sort of news is announced, you, if you're idiots like us, you immediately start thinking about the engines that we've only got a few more years to enjoy. Um, and it's, it's yeah. that thunderous Jaguar V8, the supercharged V8, isn't it? Um, and I guess in the case of Ford, again, it's another V8 in the Mustang. Presumably, they'll carry on building a proper Mustang in North America and other markets, but that'll, that's, that'll be no more in a few years. No more yeah. V8 Mustang in, the, in but, Europe. No, but, you know, by 2030, you know, Boris has already said, hasn't he, that yeah. you know, you're not going to be able to, allow to sell um, a pure ICE car yep. in 2030. So maybe this was, maybe this is partly car manufacturers, Ford in particular, trying to make headlines out of situations which are inevitable anyway. Mm. Um, you know, um, and the Jaguar thing is interesting. Uh, they had a a press conference um, which was on Monday to announce all this. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I sit on a thing called the Car of the Year, Jerry, um, and I was uh, out on the roads te- test driving all the sort listed cars, so I, I couldn't attend. So when they say they're going to be an all-electric brand from 2025, um, does that mean that they will only sell electric cars from then? Or does it mean that every new car that they introduce from 2025 will be all electric? Because they're not the same thing. They're not the same um, thing. And presumably it's, <clears throat> it's the latter and it's being spun into you know, a, a good news story. I, I can't see every Jaguar that exists today either being canned or turned into a pure EV in the next four years. Seems a lot, So I think you have, to, you, you, you have to expect things like you know, F-Pace, which is a really successful car for them, um, and rightly so, um, and which isn't that old, um, to maybe, I mean, maybe it will, maybe, maybe yeah, I mean, that might, might be due a cycle change, and maybe that will, I mean, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, and Ford, I think, is just, you know, saying proactively that it's going to do something which, frankly, it's going to have to do anyway. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I don't know. It's, it, it is what it is, isn't it? Um, I mean, okay, so can, can, can we, is this a good time to go and talk about synthetic fuels? <laughs> it's much more interesting, isn't it? More our, more our sort of um, comfort zone. Yeah, go on. There's been some interesting developments on the whole synthetic fuel thing um, over the last week or so. And this is important because it gives people like us who happen to quite like internal combustion engines some hope that we'll be able to enjoy them into yeah. the future. Yeah. So synthetic fuels, as you're sure you all know, I mean, it's, it's just it's basically it's the same fuel that you can get out of, you know, that, that you can get out of oil. But this way you get your uh, you get your carbon out of CO2 that's in the air um, and you get your hydrogen out of um, out of water through electrolysis um, and you make synthetic fuel and synthetic fuels have been around for quite a long time. Um, but there's been an awful lot of chat about it recently there was that announcement which we uh, talked about on dn uh, wasn't there about the joint venture between porsche and siemens to build an all-new synthetic fuel plant in chile which is by 2026 going to be producing half a billion liters of the stuff um which really is quite a lot i mean that's not a sort of token e- effort that's not a toe dip in the water um and 
Frank Stefan Vallis of Mr. 9-11, as he's, as he's known, the sort of head of um, Porsche's motorsport road car division, um, he was talking last week about the advantages of synthetic fuels. And he says that for, on a well-to-wheel basis, so that includes production and transportation and everything else, um, a synthetic fuel produces 85% less CO2 um, than a conventional fuel. Um, and he says that puts it on a par with an EV. Uh, and the only reason we're not all jumping for joy at the moment is, as we've seen in so many other technologies in the past, particularly things like, like fuel cells, um, just because you've got the technology and just because you know it works doesn't mean that it's ever going to make it to market or make it to market in significant numbers because um, you've still got to bring it to that market at a price the customer's prepared to pay. Um, and the last time I looked at it, uh, synthetic fuel cost about three times the price of conventional fuel. Um, so what you need are a lot of users to come on board to drive that price down. Um, and I've actually, I've actually been doing some non-car stuff. I've been looking in other areas, um, particularly transportation areas where there isn't an obvious and immediate EV alternative. So uh, shipping and um an aircraft mainly uh and you know synthetic fuels you know there, there is there is that story isn't it that the world's 15 biggest ships produce more co2 than all the cars in the world put together i don't know if that's true i do know that they produce more co2 than germany wow um <clears throat> yeah the yeah. world's 15 biggest ships produce more co2 than germany um in fact if it was if the world if, if those ships were in fact a country they would be the world's sixth biggest co2 emitter now you imagine if all you do you don't change the ships at all all you do is fill their tanks with synthetic fuel instead and you reduce that co2 impact by 85 percent i mean that's game changing isn't it mm. it means we can um, keep our cars doesn't it it be, well yeah maybe <laughs> um and, and last week a klm flight um took off from schiphol and flew to Madrid, powered by synthetic fuel. And that's the first commercial aviation flight ever to be powered by synthetic fuel. So it's, it's very, very interesting. Uh, and you need those big users and those big other industries to come on board to drive the price of it down. Because then, absolutely, as you say, it then may become sufficiently affordable for us to stick it in you know, our recreational cars, our, you know, our historics and things that we don't drive very far. And maybe in time, you know, even the cars we do want to drive a long distance and maybe maybe the internal combustion engine isn't quite as dead as um as people seem to think it is i don't know but it's it is exciting and, and because frankly we need some good news at the moment mm. uh, and i'm so <sighs> resigned i think is the word to the whole ev thing um that if there's any anything out there to cling on to i'm going to cling on to it so i shall be clinging to synthetic fields until somebody provides me with incontrovertible evidence to the to, to the contrary that they're complete busted flush and it's never going to happen indeed and valisa also said that there are no there's no nox emissions fewer particulates than uh, yeah. a, a current petrol combustion engine um which is yeah. really encouraging from a sort of technological standpoint porsche are going to start using these synthetic fuels for it's motorsport programs, um, I guess the customer racing, and experience centre cars, um, yeah. which is, you know, good on them. That's great. Um, 
He's, he, I they're think not, they're not going to get through half a billion litres of the stuff doing that, <clears> though, are they? Well, that's true. No, that's true. And he's also said that they, on this fuel, they might even extract a little more um, power from their engine. So it's, yeah, it's not as though go. it's a, a, a 90 octane fuel, you know. It's not some terrible stuff that you don't want to put in your tank. It, it's, it, it's, it appears to have very few downsides, apart from the fact that it might be expensive and. It's going to be. That's quite a downside. It's quite a downside. It's going to be very difficult to turn it into a, a sort of commercially viable product that we can all readily access, isn't it? Um, yeah, that's, but, that's, that's why we all need to pile into it. Um, yeah. But, you know, I don't know. Um, but I think people, you know, I think there will be some education that is required. Um, but the idea that you can just stick it in your car, you can just get it from the same fuel station that you always go to, there's no infrastructure requirement. I mean, you know. We were talking, weren't we, about Ford and Jaguar and, and, and everything else. And these poor car manufacturers, um, you know, they're aiming at something which isn't there yet. Mm. You know, they're having to produce, you know, they're basically the state, the futures of their companies on a set of moving goalposts. If I can mix my metaphors even more, it's like, you know, someone firing a missile at you and you firing a missile back and trying to judge where it's going to be so that you can hit it at the right time. So, you know, when you finally get to wherever it is whatever you need to survive when you get there is already in place um and you know we all kind of hope and you know we are immensely adaptable um as uh, as a species so you know i'm sure we'll make whatever changes need to be made but um but it's not easy whereas with synthetic fuel you don't need to change anything just mm. just stick it in your tank in your tank and off you go mm. and the infrastructure is there it's I mean, it makes a lot of sense to us, doesn't it? I think it's going to take a bit of broad-mindedness from policymakers to understand the benefits of this stuff. Um, yeah. But... And, uh, and also, I mean, that's the other thing. Yeah, and, and the politics is important here because, um, as we know, you know, politicians who make big policy statements um, don't tend to be terribly keen on doing these things called U-turns because that tends to get them into all sorts of, you know, hot water and everything else. But... You know, I, I suspect the way it will be done is as a as an as well as rather than an instead of, um, and so you can continue with all your electric commitments, but at the same time go well actually, and also we have this, and you know, mm. stick this in your GT3 and you know have another fifteen horsepower. <laughs> That'd be great, wouldn't it? Well, without yeah. really meaning to, we're having a very sort of alternative fuels podcast this week. We've had synthetic fuels, Sorry, we've guys. had electric cars, we've had. <laughs> Plug-in hybrid supercars. Really, is it? <laughs> uh, we won't make a habit of it. Um, but I, I want to talk about another plug-in hybrid, a GT this time, um, because I've been tooling about in the Polestar One. Oh, which... so we're doing historic cars now as well. <laughs> ah, witty. <laughs> Thank it, you. It, it, yeah, so it's been around for well at least a year, hasn't it? Um, and production will finish this year. Uh, they're building fifteen hundred. Oh, oh, sorry. I thought it, I thought it had finished. Sorry, that's why no, I thought it was No, soon. Car. They will oh, soon. They're, they're trying okay. to drum up some interest for the, the handful of remaining cars. Um, but, I, I mean, you've driven it. You drove it a little while ago. I've had a go in it in the UK this week. Um, and I just find it an interesting car because it, it's slightly instructive of what we might um, come, come to expect of performance cars over the next 15 years or so because it does have a very sizable plug-in hybrid element it's got a big uh, 34 kilowatt hour battery in it which is similar to the size of battery the honda e has in it and that's a pure ev so yeah. it's it's a substantial lithium-ion battery in there 
um, which yeah. is why there's no boot. Or well, there's a very, very small boot. It's quite comical, actually. Um, and it's got, they quote, a 90-something mile EV-only range for the Polestar 1, which is a lot. That's a really useful range. Um, and the powertrain itself is fascinating because there's a, a supercharged and turbocharged four-cylinder engine under the bonnet driving the front axle with a, a little electric but a powerful electric motor driving through the gearbox as well, an eight-speed auto. And then at the back, entirely separate, you've got one electric motor on each wheel, 116 bhp for each one. So that's a strong motor for each rear wheel. Um, and so you've got a 600-horsepower car that also has a 90-something mile quoted uh, electric-only range, which I think is really impressive. The car looks fantastic. It's pretty yeah. good to drive. It weighs 2.3 tonnes, just more than 2.3 tonnes. Um, so it's a heavy old tank. It really is. They, they make a lot of noise about the carbon fibre body, which is great. You know, that saves 200 kilograms, maybe a bit more. But it's still 2.3 tonnes. Um, the, the issue for me is that a Bentley Continental V8 isn't a whole lot lighter, but it is massively more opulent and it feels like like a much more refined civilized quiet car um and when Mm. you're cruising around in that thing enjoying just how serene it is how brilliant the ride is how opulent that cabin is you're never thinking yeah but it's quite heavy are you and for me the the polestar it, it doesn't have anything like that same sense of refinement um it actually feels, relatively speaking, like quite a tinny, resonant thing to sit in. Um, and, yeah, I mean, actually, it does disguise its weight pretty well. But I was, I was driving it in the wet, um, going round quite a big roundabout, and, you know, just sort of leaning on the grip a little bit. And then all of a sudden, it snapped on me, and it, with, with zero stability control intervention, the whole car just Blimey. went. And it was a big correction to, to bring it back. Yeah. And I, I just thought, well, there you go. That is an enormous stack of batteries, more or less over the rear axle, just dragging the car out of line. Um, so, I, I mean, I find it a confusing car. I liked it a lot, and I had fun driving it, and I think it looks stunning. But it's, a, it's an odd one for me, which is why I wanted to talk to you about it. Yeah, I mean, it's, to me, I, I thought it was a really... It's, it's like a sort of technology shake. It's like, something, like they've decided, like, we've got this really beautiful shape. And now we're going to see how much technology we can get in it. So we're going to give you everything. We're going to give you turbochargers. We're going to give you superchargers. We're going to give you hybrid power. We're going to give you massive batteries. And we're going to stick it all in there and, and, and see what happens. Um, and still, it's like driving a really well-engineered concept car. Um, it, it never felt to me like a sort of standard production car. Um, I mean, all those things you talk about, the enormous weight, um, you know, the packaging issues um you know you go, you go and drive that bentley uh and it just feels like a complete car it it, it doesn't feel it, everything feels integrated and everything feels sort of engineered in a particular way in a particularly bentley way and if you started slinging that around in the wet now it might understeer a bit or whatever but it wouldn't do anything untoward on you um and you, when i drove the polestar I, I i was impressed by the powertrain um i guess um i didn't love it at all i was objectively mm. i objectively admired what you could do with what is ultimately a two liter four-cylinder engine isn't it 
um, yeah. with all the other stuff stuck onto it. So that was quite impressive. Um, but there was no emotional connection to the driving experience for me um, in the slightest. I, I found it something. I found the whole car a really impressive technical exercise. Mm. Um, and then when I left it, I didn't look over my shoulder. Um, and you know, and, and the other thing I, I just found strange about it is, you know, big brand launch. Okay, not just you know a new model car, new range of car, mm. a new car company. Yeah. And so what do you do? We're going to go in with a type of car that within a year or two, none of our customers are ever going to be able to buy. Mm. I just, I just, you know, why go in? If you're going to have a pure EV brand, which Polestar um, is committed to being, why kick off with a hybrid? It's interesting, isn't it? It's as though they had this gorgeous shape sat there, which is actually derived from a Volvo concept. And they couldn't help themselves but do something with it. And they, they couldn't make it a, a pure EV because it wasn't uh, packaged that way. But yeah. it, it does seem odd. And, you know, how, how do we reflect on that car in years to come? The only Polestar that will ever burn hydrocarbons. It's, I don't know. It, it, it does seem an odd decision. Um, I, I, there are certain things I like about it. It's, it's got those Olin's dampers, which is quite cool. The ride at low speeds is pretty choppy pretty pretty taut um yeah, but it's all about managing the weight isn't it it's all about managing the weight what i, I i'm uh, i'm totally unconvinced though i have to say about those earnings dampers so they've got i think it's 25 settings and the fronts the front struts are really easy to adjust you open the bonnet and there's a, a little knob down there and you just no one's ever going to do it the trouble is to do the rears it's a it's a jack it's a it's a wheel off job you have to jack the car up, take the wheel off, reach up, and adjust it. And I think, if it, if it was me, I would, because you want your car to be as comfortable as possible 95% of the time, and because the ride, even in the softest setting, is pretty borderline, I think you just have it soft the whole time. And because you can't readily take the, one of the rear wheels off when you get to a great road, you end up just driving it in soft everywhere. Um, so... Yeah. I, I mean, that's unconvincing, but, but, that side of it, I have to say. But, but can, 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 can you see any customer waking up in the morning and looking outside and thinking, well, you know, I think I'll have a bit less rebound today. Ease it off a couple of clicks. I'll get the jack out. It's not going to happen, is it? No, not if you have to jack the car up. Although, I mean, there are some cars where it's very, very easy to get to um, even the rears. And then I think that becomes part of the fun of the of ownership i'd i'd love to if have it's, a car if, 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 if it's a if it's a track day car if it's a you know a gt3 or anything like that absolutely but th- that's not what mm. we're talking about here no do you think anybody has ever been driving along in their continental gt and thought to myself thought to myself oh i wish i could have a bit more bump at the back it's not going to no. happen is it it's i mean i, I suspect Olin's just said well you know these are the best dampers we've got have those Mm. Um, oh, and by the way, you can adjust them. And Polestar thought, oh, well, we, we, we can say that. Too. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not, to me, anything which is going to be any practical value to anyone at all. No, they, no, exactly right. I'm, I'm not convinced by them on this car at all. Um, I, but, I will, you know, I, you can get um, 
a, a manually adjustable suspension kit for the GR Yaris. We've spoken about it before, and that it's quite easy it's to make GR changes Yaris. to that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's, fine, it's easy to make fine. changes it's to that. It's that kind of car. I would love, I would love to have that car with that suspension on it, and just spend some time fiddling with it. I think it would be great fun, yeah. really learning the difference between bump and rebound, and w- what that feels like on the road. I think that could be brilliant, and particularly if you go on track, making changes there. But you're right for a luxurious Grand Tourer thing. Where it's not convenient to make changes at the rear, it's it's hard to make sense of it, isn't it? I think I, I can keep going about this car actually. I think the cabin, it's so Volvo that cabin. Um, it would probably feel fine at seventy grand, but at double that money, sadly, it's it's not quite um, high grade enough, particularly when you compare it to that stunning Continental GT interior, which is yeah one of the best cabins you can buy at the moment yeah it's 140 grand this car and it's left-hand drive only um so it would just be a bit annoying to use daily in the uk difficult to make a strong case for it isn't it i, I wonder who it is yeah. particularly in right-hand drive markets who's drawn to this car and drawn to spending 140k on it i guess it's someone who actually wants to be a bit contrary and who who wants the less obvious option um, and yeah. who, who wouldn't be seen dead in something as flashy as a Bentley? I don't know. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's an iconoclast car, um, yeah. which That's is always, yeah. always going to make it, you know, niche interest. Um, you know, I wish them well with it. I, I hope they finally get to sell them all. But um, you know, I won't be. You know, when I look back over my career, I, I won't be sitting there dreaming of the day I drove the Polestar One. It's just not. You know, it's not sufficiently relevant to mm. to be on my radar in that way. Okay, but and what about the powertrain technology more more generally? I mean, is the, do you think other manufacturers should be racing to to mimic it and you know put big enough batteries in these cars and strong enough motors that you can have a really handy, really useful electric only range? Um, and <coughs> no, I don't. I think, it's, I think I I think it's the wrong way to go uh, mm. because of the weight issue. Yeah, um, you know, I have. As I'm sure you have, I've had lots of um, plug-in hybrids um, lurking around the place. Um, And, you know, I have found that if you have an all-electric range of 30 miles, not 90 miles, I mean, to me, and of course there's a middle ground, but you tend to do either local trips or long trips. Mm. And if you could do all local trips, now, for instance, my kid's school is 10 miles away. Um, And when I had uh, an i8 for a while... I could just, if I drove it really gently, I could just get it there and back without the engine kicking in. Uh, and sometimes, because I'm sad in that way, um, I would, you know, I, I, I would just see if I could do the entire journey um, entirely on electric. And I'd be in a rather pathetic kind of way, I guess, uh, quite pleased if I did. Um, but then, if you're going to go and do a proper journey, um, then, I mean, do you want to be carrying? around hundreds and that's what we're talking about hundreds of extra kilograms of mass so you have an ev capability that you don't really need to use now there's of course there's an environmental argument to it and and that's fine but if you're really that bothered about that get an ev yeah Yeah? Yeah. Um, there is no point in my mind carrying around you know what's that way 2.4 tons is it getting on for yeah yeah. Um, so you're probably carrying half a ton, at least, of hybrid gubbins in there, um, which most of the time, given that 
you know, if you're just driving down the motorway uh, with the engine on, the hybrid's probably not doing very much. And if you're in the EV mode, then obviously the ice isn't doing very much. Um, so you're just carrying dead weight. Um, and, you know, I think if you look at the way that most people are doing those sorts of cars now, they are, um, particularly with the more expensive ones where they are perhaps slightly more performance oriented, um, I think that a 90, a 90 mile range, is that what it's got? Yeah, I think mm. it's just um, given the downside that is inescapable with that, which is the extra weight of that 34 kilowatt hour battery. Um, I think uh, I think I think it's the wrong way to go. Yeah, we see it across the board, don't we? I think the the issue at the moment it's a it's a science issue, actually a tech issue. It's that lithium iron these batteries are too damn heavy. You know, if you yeah. do want a ninety mile range, I don't know how big, how heavy that battery is. Although we can calculate it, really, can't we? Or we, or we can estimate. So the the Honda E, which has got a similar sized battery, that's a fifteen hundred kilo car. Um, and that's a little city car. Really, that should weigh 11, maybe 1,200, something that size, if it had a conventional powertrain, I mean. So yeah. you're looking at, let's call it 300 kilos of batteries. That is, and then it's all the motors as well. And then the motors as well and all sorts of other stuff. You're looking at half a tonne. You know, I, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if the hybrid system on that car weighed half a tonne. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> McLaren have come out with a number for the hybrid system on the Atura. Um, or the Arthur, um, and I should have it to hand. I don't. I think it's 134 kilograms. Yeah, for the whole thing. That's the lot. That's modules. That's motors. That's batteries. Everything. Keep um, going. I can check it. 130 so, kilograms. I mean, yeah, you're close. Oh, four out. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, that, and, and that's the difference. That's mm. the difference. So you know, ask yourself, what EV range do you need? And if you need more than that, should you actually be thinking about still having a hybrid or should you just go and bite the bullet and get an EV? Um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And maybe, maybe when there's a, a, a breakthrough, a quantum leap in battery technology, perhaps that solid state, graphene, whatever, I don't know. But once, once we're away from lithium-ion batteries and these hybrid and electric systems can be much, much lighter than they are, Perhaps, it, particularly in the case of plug-in hybrid, maybe it makes sense then. But yeah, given that I mean, the penalty they, I mean, they is five hundred kilograms or so, oh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, even with lithium-ion, um, obviously there have been enormous advance, advances, um, and they are much more energy dense than they used to be. Um, yeah. But they still require a lot of cooling. People forget that with batteries, it's not just the weight of the batteries; it's the weight of the stuff you've got to have with them. Um, your cooling system, batteries get hot. Um, mm. And so, you know, the bigger the batteries, the more power it produces, the more cooling stuff you've got to have in your car um, to keep it all under control. So it's, you, you just get into this circle of whatever the opposite of a circle of virtue is. Um, Spiral of doom. And more weight begats more weight. Spiral of doom. There you go. Um, yeah. I think um, given, we've got two very different approaches here to plug-in hybrid performance powertrains. Um, McLaren and Polestar. I think the McLaren way is quite convincing. It's, it's not a huge weight penalty. And you've got enough of an electric range to do, electric, uh, to do local journeys, to get out of the city, to get into the city without, without burning anything. I think that's quite convincing, isn't it? But Yeah. 
And yeah. you're, you're, you're getting all the other benefits of hybrid. You're getting that low CO2 number. You know, you're still getting another 100 horsepower out of it. You're getting the torque infill, which gets mm. rid of your turbo lag. So all those benefits are all there. You don't need to have half a ton of stuff on your car to get those benefits. Um, so, yeah, I, like you, I completely agree. I think, it's a, I think it's a much more credible direction to go in. Okay, well... We're almost done, but I just want to ask you about one other car that you've been driving recently. You reviewed it for DN. Um, one of my favourite cars on sale at the moment, and I've toyed with the idea of buying one, but I'd have to get rid of my car to do so. so I don't really want to do that. I have that. no idea what you're talking about. I'm not, not even going to mention it, but <laughs> I, the car that I adore is the Fiesta ST. And there's this new one, the Edition, which has got manually adjustable coilovers. There you go. That's, that's part of the fun. It's got a diff and... I just I find it one of the most rewarding performance cars on sale right now. I love it. Okay, and you've been driving a version of that car, a taller, jacked-up SUV-style version, the Puma ST, um, and I'm just intrigued to know what it's like. Oh, that's not not an encouraging expression. Well, do you know what? If the Fiesta ST didn't exist, and if I wasn't running a Focus ST for auto car long term at the moment. I'd probably be a lot more enthused about it than I am. Because what I'd be saying is, which is no more than the truth, which is is that this is far and away the best, from a point of view of driving, the best crossover SUV that there is. Um, nothing in my experience, um, certainly for that kind of money, um, is, is anything like as good. Um, so, you know, congratulations, well done, Ford. You have done something which... Um, is very worthwhile and hasn't been done before, which is that you've produced a crossover SUV, which is actually worth driving way. However, (laughs) what you've got is you've got a car which is higher and heavier than a Fiesta, but which is nevertheless still based on a Fiesta. So it still has, for instance, the beam rear axle of a Fiesta. But it costs about the same Uh, They actually dropped the price because of uh, Brexit's tariff-related issues recently. It was slightly more than a Focus ST. It's now slightly less than a Focus ST. But it costs about the same as a Focus ST, which has hugely more power, proper multi-link rear end, um, is lower, and in all ways that matter to me, just a better thing to drive. And I think if ever you wanted to illustrate, really, why these crossover SUVs from a dynamic point of view are so problematic um, put someone in a Focus ST and then stick someone in a Puma uh, ST and it will be clear as day but the other thing is is because the Puma is higher because it is it, it is heavier um, they've had to tie it down a lot more mm. um, just to get it to behave itself which means the ride is um, I mean I drove it to Silverstone and back uh, just for this car of the year thing um, earlier in the week um, and you know, I as a you know, generally speaking, I love high performance Fords. Uh, you know, the Focus ST is second only to the Civic in its category. The Fiesta ST is second to none in its class. Uh, I love those cars, but I found myself just getting a bit cheesed off with the Puma because it just wouldn't settle down. Mm. You're just sitting on the motorway doing seventy-five miles an hour or whatever it is. It was just restless. And maybe it's because I'm an old man, I don't know. But I just, I just, I, you know, but it's not really that. It's because I know it doesn't have to be like that. Because I know I can just get in the focus, which is actually also quite a stiff car. But because it's actually got a proper rear axle on it, 
um, you know, it feels settled, it feels planted, um, it feels controlled in the way the puma just doesn't. So, you know, I think that um, Ford have done a really good job given the limitations within which they were operating, which is, comparatively speaking, a high and heavy crossover SUV. But, you know, not even Ford can defy the laws of physics. And, you know, compared to the Fiesta, it's more expensive, it's slower, it uses more fuel, it's heavier, um, it's much less fun to drive, it's just, sorry, worse, and massively more expensive. <laughs> Get there a Fiesta. Go. There you go. Or a Focus. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Well, okay, let's wrap that one up. That was the, without really intending for it to be that way, that was the alternative fuels and crossovers episode of the Drive Nation podcast. And I do apologise for that. <laughs> well, I promise you we're never going to do one of these like it ever again. No, we'll get Can back just... to some Heartland stuff next week. Someone actually suggested a brilliant idea for a podcast we both like it so we're going to do it and it just means we can talk about really cool 70s 80s 90s supercars and sports cars so there you go we'll be uh, back to our usual selves next week yep look forward to it bye everyone thank you all the best the drive nation podcast with dan prosser and andrew frankel 